Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Women have been serving in the military since the American Revolution in both combat and non-combat roles. World War I, however, was the first time women served in the United States military in an official capacity, and since then, their roles have expanded significantly throughout all service branches. To honor all women who have defended America throughout history, the Military Women's Memorial was built and is located at the gateway of Arlington National Cemetery. My guests today are Phyllis Wilson, President, and Marilla Cushman, Senior Advisor to the President, with the Military Women's Memorial. They are going to describe the history of service women in the military and how their roles have evolved in recent military conflicts. They will also talk about the Military Women's Memorial, which honors women who have served in or with the United States Armed Forces. So welcome, Phyllis and Marilla, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much, Cheryl. Okay. Well, Marilla, let's start with you. Since we wanted to talk more about the role of women in the armed forces, let's have you give us an overview about that, about how many women have served in the armed forces and the various conflicts that we have, uh, our country has experienced over the past many years. Well, thank you for the opportunity. We we love to take any advantage whenever we can to speak about the remarkable service of women's service to the nation. And certainly, you know, so many people, there are just so many people who don't know that history. Um, and so we take, we love the opportunity to celebrate that and talk about it. So overall, more than 3 million women have served either in or with the American military, uh, beginning with the American Revolution. Um, of course, in those days, they served with the military. They followed a husband or a brother or whatever into battle. And of course, you know, the battle was here on our own soil. So we don't know how many, but we do know for sure that some of them indeed served. Uh, they served as nurses, as cooks, as laundresses, you know, things that women did. But some of them also disguised themselves as men. Uh, enlisted uh, in one of the, you know, one of their local regiments. Uh, some of them were wounded, took care of their own wounds um, until they were discovered as a woman and uh, summarily uh, asked to leave. Uh, so, so women have just always wanted to serve. They wanted to make a difference. So, and kind of the same thing followed with the, with the Civil War. We got we're a little more organized. We had women like Dorothea Dix putting together, a, you know, a, an official sort of supply um, um, logistics organization with respect to, to, to the nursing care. And again, women, you know, either stepped up, it was on their soil. And again, we had women serving and um, disguising themselves as men and following a husband or a brother uh, until they were discovered um, as a woman and summarily sent home. Um, and uh, Spanish-American War, things got a little more specific with respect to women uh, in looking for nurses to step up women who were qualified, trained as nurses to serve during the Spanish-American War. And they did so well that the Army decided it needed a permanent corps of um, nurses. So uh, in 1901, the Army Nurse Corps was created. In 1908, the, the Navy Nurse Corps. So we had, we had this corps of nurses who were actually in the military. They didn't have rank. Um, and as the story goes, the male members of Congress didn't want women ordering men around. But I have two nurses here with me today. And we know that nurses always, they don't have any problem ordering folks around whether they have rank or not. So at any rate, um, we, uh, so the nursing side of the house was somewhat organized. And we started approaching World War I and the Secretary of the Navy realizing that he has a huge issue with respect to manpower and what are we going to do? to, to uh, find qualified forces uh, to serve in the Navy, because uh, we were sending, you know, men to both fronts. 
And so he turns to his folks and uh, asks if he can bring women into the Navy. And the law said, no, uh, you have to be a citizen, you have to be a male, and you have to be a citizen. So this manpower shortage continues to get worse, obviously, as they get closer and closer uh, to, the, to the start of this war. And he turns to them again and asks, what about this Naval Reserve Act? Can we, can we bring women in that way? Um, and, and sure enough, the law uh, that created the, the Naval Reserve said you just had to be a citizen, didn't, didn't, didn't specify gender. So uh, he quickly um, uh, put out the word that they were recruiting for women. And in the end, some, um, some 12,000 women served in the Navy, all enlisted women, um, and a, a little over 300 in the Marine Corps and a handful in the Coast Guard served during World War I. They all served here in continental United States. They were, again, they were m more on the administrative of the house, logistics side of the house. Um, and, of course, we had nurses. Um, some uh, 15,000 Army nurses served overseas uh, and here in the United States, and some 1,500 Navy nurses the same. Uh, overseas and here in the United States. And so after the war, um, they all were sent home. But it was those women who served during World War I that really were the tipping point for the passage of the 19th Amendment, where women got the vote. No longer could we say that women didn't fulfill the full responsibilities of a citizen, i.e., uh, they didn't serve in the military. But nonetheless, um, in 1922, the Congress decided we weren't going to have women at all in the, in the military and passed legislation that said women couldn't serve, except for nurses. Uh, nurses have always been sp special with respect to the military. And the, kind of the same thing happened as we approached World War II. Uh, again, we have critical manpower shortages, and there were the Edith North Rogers, a, a congresswoman from Massachusetts, who experienced some of the, the, the hardships that women addressed during World War I, knew that we needed to do something specific with respect to women in the military, um, and uh, fought to have legislation passed to create... Um, um, the first, the it, first, the, the women's army auxiliary corps, uh, because again, the army wasn't particularly um, accepting of women in the service, so they created this women's auxiliary corps that served with the military. They were contract. They were they sent they were sent overseas. Um, didn't have Geneva Convention, um, and the other but the other services didn't feel the same way. They, their legislation that was passed for them brought women into the reserve. So the Navy and the Marine Corps, for example, Coast Guard, uh, were all, uh, all in the military. And uh, recruiting began to get a little difficult for this Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, the, and the Army knew that they had to do something different. And um, legislation was passed in 1943, uh, creating the Women's Army Corps, but it was kind of interesting. One of the one of the stories uh, that goes with this WAAC was a was a woman named Maddie Panette. Maddie Panette was in the WAAC, and Eisenhower was needed administrative help and asked him to send you know send me some of those wax. And so these four of them uh, got on a boat and ended up in England. Uh, to work for General Eisenhower. And when the Casablanca Conference uh, comes into being, um, they get on a British vessel uh, to sail to Casablanca. And on the way, uh, they got torpedoed. And they spent the night in a, in a lifeboat. But they made it to Casablanca and the conference and did their job um, like good wax should. Um, and and ended up, this Maddie Panette ended up being, ended as a lieutenant colonel uh, in the Army, retiring as a lieutenant colonel. But in the end, some 400,000 women served during World War II, 400,000 women. And they came from every 
every corner of the United States, like this little Maddie Panette. Um, so at the end of the war, um, it, rather than sending everybody, you know, they were going to send everybody home because it was the duration of the war plus six months was, the, was their contract. Um, and Eisenhower, Marshall, you know, these very powerful general officers, Admiral uh, Flagg and general officers, um, fought to have legislation passed. And in 1948, the Women's Armed Services Integration Act was passed that gave women a, a permanent place in the military so that, so that I could serve a career, Phyllis could serve a career as a, as a full-time uh, military person and expect to have a career in the military. Uh, so that legislation was was groundbreaking. You know, it 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 gave us a permanent place, but it did have some very uh, pretty prohibitive restrictions. One, it could women could only be two percent of the force. The highest grade that a woman could achieve was lieutenant colonel or commander. Um, women could not serve aboard combat ships or combat aircraft. Uh, there were provisions off and on uh, whether you could, if when you became, became pregnant, that you know you were immediately discharged. Women didn't have the same benefits as men; um, they were treated as single individuals. Um, so it was again, it was it was a foot in the door uh, and groundbreaking for with respect to women in the military. But it did have some serious restrictions that really affected our service until actually just a few years ago. Um, so, um, so anyway, that's the way it was uh, in 1948. And um, everybody had gone home, uh, and the Korean War um, raises its ugly head. And for the first time, we recalled women to active duty, mostly many of them in the medical side of the house, on the nursing side of the house. In the end, only Army nurses served on the ground in Korea and Navy nurses on combat ships. And so we were beginning to get a little more organized, but in talking with some of those women who served during that period between sort of um, between the, you know, the Korean War and up to Vietnam, you know, I've asked them, why did you, you know, there were so many restrictions. What, what were you, why didn't you push back against that? And, and many of them have told me that they knew that if they got organized and pushed back and made public, spoke publicly about, about some of these issues, that they probably would just um, pass legislation that uh, limited women's service, you know, again. Um, so that's kind of the way it was uh, until Vietnam. Uh, we had some 7,500 military women, most of them nurses who served in, on, in, on the ground in Vietnam in theater. Um, but um, again, it's, it's kind of all about need. <laughs> Westmoreland uh, wanted first, the first kind of the crack in that, in that prohibition of women serving there, uh, the, was Westmoreland was looking for uh, uh, a whack to provide advice and assistance to the Vietnamese army t with respect to bringing women into their army. So, so one lone whack was there for, for several months by herself, and then he decided he needed more administrative support. You know, send me some whacks to, I need secretarial support. So that sort of broke the logjam with respect to women in Vietnam. Uh, again, restricted, um, they didn't have, uh, you know, they didn't have um, weapons training. Um, they were there as administrative support. And we did have women, many women serving throughout the theater, of course, um, besides the nurses, um, in, in, in the intelligence field, uh, and certainly in logistics, in, in finance, in administration. But by and large, um, it was more on the administrative side of the house for those that were uh, non-nurse women, um, yeah, and and so it was it was those women uh, who came home, and of course this was the this was the time of the women's movement, and we were looking to have things um, change with respect to women, and and certainly uh, 
women in the military were, was one of those areas where we were looking for change. And so, and and thank you for that. That's really kind of a wonderful bringing us up to the present time. I mean, it's it's interesting as I listen to you and reflecting on my experience as a a nurse during the Vietnam era uh, in Japan. And you you are absolutely right. There was only nurses and uh, uh, women Army Corps uh, members at that time. So so Marilla, talk about the roles of women, how they've changed now and expanded in the in the recent military conflicts and what does the future look like? We'd like to hear more about that. Sure. Well, you know, certainly from Vietnam forward, um, you know, the more we, we had to lift that 2% ceiling uh, because the country was, was, um, was tired of the draft. So we were going to bring more women in. So we lifted the 2% ceiling. If you're going to bring more women in, you got to give them more rank. So we lifted that uh, restriction on rank. Um, and so women began to serve in a lot of different places. And so by the time we get to the late 80s, um, and, and we have conflicts like um, in Grenada, in Panama, uh, the first Desert Storm War, and we needed to deploy forces, well, there were women throughout many of the units, maybe not in combat jobs because they were, you know, they were still restricted from there, but they were holding important leadership positions. So we deployed them. And, um, and so many of those women came back from like for the first Desert Storm War, for example, and the pilots, for example, by this time they're flying again, utility aircraft, not, uh, not, not fighters and things of that sort. Um, and they marched themselves up to the hill and petitioned, and um, the Congress passed legislation repealing that part of that 1948 Act in 1991, permitting women to serve in combat aircraft. And in 1993, the same thing with combat ships. So, we're, again, more women are serving in positions that you, you can't deploy the force for things like... Um, like the global war on terror, um, because you, without women, uh, because they're everywhere and they're doing very important jobs. Um, so to get around some of those combat restrictions, we uh, we attached women to combat units rather than assigning them, um, and and it became more and more difficult. For example, for commanders to lead, and and utilize their best forces, their best talent, because some of them obviously were women, um, unless they could, they could deploy and do the same things within the law that their male counterparts could do. So, uh, so indeed, we couldn't, we couldn't operate with the, without the, the, using our all of our resources, 100% of our resources. So certainly with this global war on terror, um, we have, we've, we started utilizing women, for example, um, in um, attaching them to special forces units uh, so that they, when, when we went into homes and things of that sort uh, in, in, um, in the Middle East, and respecting their culture, for example, uh, and for certainly for expect, respecting their culture, we wanted to have women there to sort of separate the the women family members uh, there in in that household. And we learned a lot of uh, got a lot of intelligence from them. We also had women uh, administering uh, medical care and things of that sort in many of those villages. So it became more and more clear that the, the, the talents of military women were absolutely needed. Uh, and I, like, I always think that those young women, that we saw pictures of them um, um, uh, on convoys and things of that sort, those young women really changed the way that we prosecute the wars or, or our conflicts here in America and using all of the, the talents of our people. 
And so recently, um, we saw in January of 2017, uh, to, to take advantage of those women and, and the things that they were able to bring to the fight, so to speak, the Secretary, uh, we saw the Secretary of Defense delete those regulatory guidelines that dictated where women would serve on the battlefield. And so today, women are doing absolutely everything. Uh, we have women serving in our highest, uh, highest levels of command. Today, the, you know, the Chief of Naval Operations is a, is a, is a four-star admiral, a woman. Uh, we have women flying fighter aircraft, commanding wings. They are in tanks um, as armor, um, you know, part of the armor force. Uh, they're doing absolutely everything. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's a certainly a sea change when I look back and see the restrictions on when I joined the Army in 1972. Uh, my class of, of young women officers were the first class to receive weapons training. Uh, so it was it it's it has absolutely been a sea change and and just months before I got my commission, that provision that said that women couldn't uh, didn't have the same benefits or wouldn't have the same benefits as men, um, that fell away and and who made that happen but Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, who picked up a case from a young first lieutenant who was suffering financially, uh, and and brought that case forward to the Supreme Court. So, uh, yeah, we're doing everything. <laughs> well, that has been a really an excellent account of the journey of women in the military and the service women. And so this is a good time to take a break before we start talking about the Military Women's Memorial. So in case you tuned in late, we are talking in anticipation of Veterans Day that's coming up. We're talking about women veterans. And my guests are Phyllis Wilson, who is the president, and Marilla Cushman, who is the senior advisor to the president with the Military Women's Memorial. So we're going to hear more in the second half about the Women's Memorial. But right now, we want to take a short break, and you're listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. is very special today. We are talking about women veterans and women in the military. And my guests are Phyllis Wilson and Marilla Cushman with the Military Women's Memorial. And we got an outstanding account of how the roles of women have expanded uh, throughout our history. And now we want to learn more about the Military Women's Memorial. So Phyllis, I'm going to turn to you. What is that memorial? Give us a little bit of an overview of why it was established, its mission, where it's located, how it's supported. What do we need to know? Sure. And thank you again for giving us this opportunity. I'm so excited to share with your audience about the Military Women's Memorial. So this memorial, and I will tell you, I served for 37 years in the Army. And during part of my career, when the memorial had been created, I didn't know about it. I only learned about it in 2013. And it was created and opened in 1997. But in the mid-1980s is when Congress approved by public law the creation of the Military Women's Memorial. Then it took over a decade to raise the money to be able to build it. So groundbreaking happened in the summer of 1995 and dedication, the grand opening, with over 40,000 people out front of this beautiful memorial 
happened in October of 1997. So it's now 26 years old. But why did it come to fruition? And a lot of it had to do with those World War II women that Marilla spoke about. 400,000 women had served for the duration of World War II plus six months and then were basically said, sometimes, thank you for your service. Sometimes they didn't even get that and they, they were sent home. So as some of these memorials and museums were coming to being located across the country, these women rightly said, what about us? What about our stories? Why aren't we being talked about? And so that was the genesis of it. And many of the women that were out front were in fact World War II women, Korea, Vietnam, and those that served in peacetime, which we tend to forget. We only think about our wartime men and women, but there's a huge peace dividend. When our nation is strong and powerful and mighty, many times, we don't end up going to war, and that's a good thing. So the women and the men that have served in times when they didn't have to go to war should be as championed and as uplifted as those that did serving, serve during a conflict. But on opening day in 1997, we also had at least two women that had served in World War I, over 100 years of age, and they said, one of them said, when I served in the, in the Navy in 1917 and 18, women weren't even allowed to vote. And yet they stepped forward and said, put me in coach. I, I'm ready to be part of this team. And to Marilla's point, because of those 10,000 plus women, it really was a watershed moment for us. But the Memorial and the Education Center. So we're located at the entrance to Arlington National Cemetery. It's a beautiful, as you're driving into Arlington, there is a half circle curved front wall. That wall was built in the 1930s, but the Memorial itself behind it and Education Center is 33,000 square feet. It's a museum looking environment. It starts with the Revolutionary War and comes to modern day and tells the stories of these three million plus women that have defended this country. And so that's where we love to, it's open to the public, free admission, seven days a week, nine to five every day except Sunday, which is noon to five. So we encourage anybody here in the area, take the time if you're coming to Arlington or just come see us, make sure you take the time. And I can tell you a couple of hours is not enough it's not enough. You'll have to come back again. But we have listening stations where you can watch short videos and learn about women from all of these different eras. You can see exhibits and artifacts and uniforms and storylines. It's, it's really a fascinating place to walk through. So you can, if you come and you are a small group, as a matter of fact, just about right now, we should have a group coming from the Armed Forces Retirement Home in Washington, D.C. They're coming today and getting a docent-led tour through the Military Women's Memorial. So if there's any groups that are interested in that, go to our website, womensmemorial.org, contact us. We're happy to organize a docent-led tour for you. Otherwise, you can just come on through, but any of our staff are quite knowledgeable and willing to greet you and walk you through and answer any questions you may have. So one of the questions that people have a lot is, how are we supported? And we are created by Congress, but not funded by the federal or state governments. It is all on the generosity of great Americans, people that want to support what we do. So one of our locate when you think about our location at the entrance to Arlington National Cemetery, is if you do a look, turn around, and you're looking towards Washington, D.C., there is nothing between us and the Lincoln Memorial. Everybody knows about the Lincoln Memorial. Very few Americans, sadly, know about the Military Women's Memorial. So we invite you. It's a hidden gem, hidden in plain sight. Come see us, and you know, hopefully you'll fall in love with us and decide you want to support us. One of the ways we do that is through our Square Foot Society. We're 33,000 square feet, and we invite Americans to sponsor a honorary square foot of the memorial for it to keep us running. And that is a $330 uh, gift, which you can do over 12 months or one fell swoop in honor or in memory of yourself, a loved one, 
or some woman that you you hold in high esteem. You can do any of those things, which is another way to help support us. Um, and that's really what we do is try to keep the doors open and free to the public. So come see us. Okay. And Phyllis, I want to drill down a little bit to many of the features that are in the Military Women's Memorial. And one that is particularly of interest uh, is the the memorials register, and I'd like to hear more about that. I actually started. I did include my name in that register, but I want you to be able to explain what that process is for service women to be included in the register and what to know, especially if a, a service woman has already passed away, that the family might still get uh, someone's name in there. Of course. This is the heart and soul of the memorial. It is the core piece, not the physical part, but that national database, that repository where a military woman can share her personal account of her time in the military. And to me, what once you go in and you create this storyboard, it looks like a big baseball card. It has your photo. It has the years you served. What branch of service? What are your awards and decorations? Where did you serve? For you, as an example, Cheryl, in Japan. For me, in Germany, in Iraq, Afghanistan. You know, you just list out all of those locations. But then the the part that I adore the most is the memorable experiences segment where somebody will tell their story of some of their most memorable and some are harrowing stories of, oh my gosh, I can't believe she survived that. And others are just fun and they, they just make you smile. But we encourage everybody living or deceased, currently serving or not, because while we are a memorial, we are a living memorial. We want your stories now. Not Don't wait until after you've retired or until you know, you're, you're quite aged. Put your story in there, even if you're in your 20s and you're, you're actively serving right now, or it's long past and, and your grandmother served in World War II and she's no longer with us. We can help you get their stories into that national database. This database actually has almost 310,000 women's stories of service in there. And while that is a tremendous number, and I can never read through all of what we already have, as Marilla mentioned earlier, we have over 3 million women that have served. And so we are at 10%. That means nine out of 10 women that stories should be in the database, they are not there. So it's a call to action for anybody that's hearing this. If you or someone in your family or someone that you know has served in or with the United States military, a woman, their story deserves to be, as we say, it's their rightful place in history in our national repository. Researchers use this extensively, and whether they're looking at a cross-segment of women that served during the Vietnam conflict all across the globe, in that 20 years from 55 to 1975, over 265,000 women served, and eight of those women gave their lives in Vietnam, all nurses. And many people don't even know that there are eight women's names on the Vietnam Wall, the long black wall outside near the Lincoln Memorial. They just don't know that. But that's what we do and champion those. We want to hear those individual stories of service. And it's a call to action. How do we help? And how do you look up a name when you come to the memorial? We have computers, you put in the name, any of our names that are here on this uh, radio broadcast today, you put in our name, you find it, and then you click view, and on a very large screen television, up comes that big baseball card with all of that story information. And I can tell you, family members, whether it's grandchildren, daughters, anybody that, that is related to that individual, when that story goes up on the, the TV screen, there are tears involved because they're just so proud that at a national memorial, that woman that they know, her story will live forevermore here at our memorial. All right. Well, I hope that our listeners are taking note and will get in touch. I assume you can look at the website again to see how Absolutely. to register. Yeah, womensmemorial.org, womensmemorial.org in the top right. It says create an account and anybody can create an account. You do not have to be a military woman, anybody. And once you've done that, created an account on the left-hand side, it says find a service woman. Click on that and put in that grandmother's name 
even your daughter's name, maybe if she's serving, see if she's already registered. And if she isn't, we need your help. We're asking you to help get those stories in there and do the best you can. We don't have to have every bit of the information, but every bit that you can give us is just, it's stunning and it will live forevermore. Thank you. Well, Marilla, I wanted to get back to you to describe a little bit in more detail about what else is at the Military Women's Memorial, about the types of collections. Are more uh, items being uh, requested or asked for? And talk about that and the exhibitions and what should we know about what else is in the Women's Memorial? Well, we have the largest collection of artifacts and memorabilia related to military women's service in the, in the world. We have about 8,000 donations, and of course within donations there are multiple pieces of memorabilia or artifacts. And they include uh, photographs, documents, textiles, you know, various artifacts, uh, audiovisual materials that are, that are one of a kind, certainly. Some of them never before seen. And, and I know Phyllis and I, you know, we have the opportunity to kind of review some of these things. And it was like, oh, my gosh, I didn't, I didn't know that. Just in amazing things. So some of our favorite uh, items, for example, we have a, a couple of wedding dresses made from parachute silk from World War II. Uh, and so you can almost make up your own stories about about those wonderful things. Um, we have a pair of mosquito boots, thigh-high leather boots, beautiful, uh, that were issued to, to the first women who went into North Africa, for example, um, because they didn't have proper uniforms. Uh, and they protected them from malaria from, you know, mosquito boots or mosquito bites. We have... Um, one of the jackets from the first class of women West Pointers who you know who who graduated from West Point. Um, we have the the uh, flight suit of the first woman Thunderbird, you know, woman who was in the Thunderbird team, uh, Nicole Malakowski, and just absolutely wonderful items. Uh, you see a. a you tell the story of World War II, for example, and you see uh, uh, some of them who were involved in the in the intelligence side of the house and how they redacted uh, letters home. You know, they cut them out rather than blacking them out. Uh, just amazing things. Pictures of the of the of the women who were POWs during uh, World War II, held by the Japanese, some by three years. We have uh, great uniforms of the women who served in. In Vietnam, um, again, many of them were adapted men's uniforms. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's just like I said, a, a never before seen artifacts that help us tell the story of women's service to the nation. And so they're used in our exhibits uh, that um, that are throughout that uh, three thirty three thousand square foot memorial. Um, and, and they kind of help us chronicle that history of women's service to the nation. And we have, uh, we use the images to tell that story. We use many of the artifacts themselves with, with the uniforms, for example, and the various items that they used. In fact, we, uh, we've, uh, we've been so excited about being able to tell this story through the, the uh, artifacts that the women have given us, that our 2024 calendar speaks to this remarkable collection uh, from, from a gas mask from Desert Storm uh, to a medal from the Civil War. Uh, so it, it's just a world class. And we've also been approached by many of the, the world class um, museums across the United States uh, loaning some of our artifacts to help tell this story of women's service. And, and we're always so proud to be able to do that, uh, to have people help us tell this remarkable story. So we've, as I said, we've used them in, in various exhibits uh, throughout the years, over this past 26 years. Um, we've, had, um, we've had a special, uh, um, many of our uh, temporary exhibits, for example, come from other organizations as well. We've had one on the 
on the service of the women who served in the women Air Force service pilots during World War II. We have a beautiful exhibit right now, a temporary exhibit with Dave Rappaport, an artist out of New York City, who helps us tell the story of the current women who are serving through his, through his portraits. Um, he uh, uses one, one color of ink called Payne's Gray. It's a watercolor. Um, and, and he's captured images of you know, Senator Tammy Duckworth, of our first ranger, of uh, women on ships. Uh, so, again, helping us tell the story uh, of women serving today. Uh, we also have another exhibit, not only in the memorial, but a traveling exhibit called The Color of Freedom, which speaks to the diversity of the women who've served, beginning with the American Revolution, uh, all the way through to today. Um, and that's right now in Arkansas. Uh, it'll travel to Dallas. Um, again, uh, an opportunity to tell this remarkable story. Uh, several years ago, probably our most uh, popular exhibit was an, an exhibit from um, that, that spoke to the, to the men and women who had served in the global war on terror. And we did the portraits of the first 1,300 men and women they called the Faces of the Fallen uh, that were there at the memorial for, for many years. So a variety, of, a variety of medium that help us tell that story of, of women and certainly the service of women uh, in our military. One thing I was also going to ask you, Marilla, and I think I can't—I believe Phyllis mentioned it, but you may have mentioned it as well—is you have a research library that helps to assist historians who are writing about women's contributions. Talk about that, and then, as part of that, I believe there you also have the oral history program. So, talk about that. Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, we have a a very robust research library. Uh, some thousand uh, titles um, that speak to the service of military women. Uh, and we've, we're proud to be able to work with journalists, researchers from actually from around the world um, with, with respect to their, uh, at their efforts to tell the story of women's service. One of, uh, there's a great book that's just been released just a year ago called The Girls Who Stepped Out of Line. Uh, it was written by a, a Actually, a retired Army Major General Mary Kay Eater, but just it, and we were so delighted to be able to help tell this story of these these uh, intrepid women who uh, pushed the envelope, um, and and to be able to be part of that. We're working with a researcher right now from Poland, who's doing, uh, who's focusing her research on gender gendered language, and how we how women are referred to and represented uh, in many of the, of the national documents and things of that sort, sort actually from, from across the world, actually. Um, we've worked with, with uh, authors who've, who have done seminal research on the women of World War I, uh, on um, certainly the... And, and the nurses of World War II who served in Europe. Um, so we are always um, delighted to be able to, to work with these, these scholars and certainly the journalists who, who can help us tell the story. Our oral history program, we have some thousand oral histories dating back to World War I. Uh, we're in the process right now of digitizing those because they're in many different medium. Uh, and of course, you know, that's changed so much. The technology has changed so much over the years, but working to digitize those so that they, uh, that's easier access to these stories of these, of these women that, you know, that certainly have never been, never been told before that, that, uh, you know, that people can access. So it is, a. Uh, uh, it, it is, a, it is a, we, we work every day in a variety of different ways to help others help us tell this remarkable story of women's service. Phyllis, talk about how you mentioned already that you have a tour coming in uh, just about as we were uh, uh, recording this uh, 
this broadcast, but give us maybe a little more information about educating community groups. And I know you have some events coming up and uh, also like to have you talk about volunteer opportunities. We want to make sure we get that in before this program ends. Absolutely. And thank you. And and as a quick aside on the Oral History Project, some of those that have been digitized, when you visit the memorial or you go to our website, we actually have QR codes now. So there's a whole big panel with 25 or 30 incredible women. You see their photos, what branch of service in their era, and then there's the QR code right beside it. And you just put your phone up there and you can stand there and listen to her tell you her story firsthand account. So we're really proud that we're able to bring some of these stories to life. But as far as educating community groups and organizations, we have school groups from middle school to high school to college to all kinds of, many times it's military women's groups and and veteran associations, but our honor flights, oh my heavens, we get over 125 honor flights every year that come to the memorial. Now think about this, here in the DC area, almost all of the other monuments and memorials are outside only. We have an indoors. And so those honor flights, many of them sit and have lunch and or dinner inside the Military Women's Memorial. And I can tell you whether there's one or two women in the entire honor flight, or sometimes we get an all women's honor flight, doesn't matter. The men fall in love with these exhibits. And when they get to the section that is the era in which they served, we see a lot of guys with their Vietnam ball caps or their Korea ball caps. When they get to the section where we showcase what the women did in that era, some of these guys, if they're in wheelchairs, they'll put their brakes on the wheelchair, they'll push and stand up, and they will salute that exhibit and say, those women made a difference. They brought me home. So those are powerful stories, and we have an opportunity anytime. You guys can check out um, on our website when we have honor flights coming. We encourage you, be there, greet them as they're coming inside, visit with them, thank them for their service. I mean, when you get, you're not going to have many more years left of having a World War II veteran come to visit anywhere here in the D.C. area. So take that moment to thank them, and especially our Vietnam veterans. I got to tell you, the the way they were not properly greeted coming home from war, um, now it's our turn to say thank you for your service. So we love to get the organizations to come and see us. And our volunteers are crucial. We could not do what we do without our volunteers. And so we're always looking for more. You, It's super easy. We do provide a training opportunity, and then we partner you with a more experienced volunteer, your first couple of tours, if you will. Um, And some people, they just want to be behind the scenes. They want to set up all the chairs for our events, like on Veterans Day. We have the last major event in the D.C. area on both Memorial and on Veterans Day. At 3 p.m. each of those days, Memorial or Veterans Day, we host an incredible ceremony with several hundred people that come physically to watch it. We live stream it. We also record it, and then it goes up onto our YouTube channel. So we encourage anybody to come and see us on Veterans Day at 3 p.m. We would love to see you there. And if you see one of our volunteers that have their, their Military Women's Memorial volunteer pin on, take a second and thank them. They are giving their time and many of them are either women veterans themselves, family members of a woman veteran or a military spouse. And so they're giving their time to to greet you and make you um, as comfortable and happy inside our beautiful memorial as possible. So we have a number of events, not just Veterans Day, but we do a lot with wreaths across America. So on Saturday, December 16th, we will have, uh, we look for volunteers that day too. We'll be serving thousands of cups of hot cocoa and hot apple cider out on the plaza in front to really thank the, on average, 60 to 70,000 Americans that come to lay wreaths at Arlington National Cemetery. Typically, it's a cold morning, and we just want to be there um, to thank them and serve them 
in that small little way of something hot to drink. It, it's been an amazing opportunity for what we get to do in the community. So we'd love to see you locals come and say hello to us at the Military Women's Memorial. Okay. Well, we're just about out of time. So Phyllis, tell us again how our listeners can learn more about the Military Women's Memorial, the website, or anything else that you want them to know. We're trying to be everywhere so that you can learn uh, however you choose to. So our website, again, is womensmemorial.org, womensmemorial.org. We also are on every social media platform except for TikTok. Um, you can find us. Just look for Military Women's Memorial. We are there. And we have a YouTube channel with nearly 100 videos that tell short stories and longer versions of interviews with incredible military women, some that you've never heard of before, but you can learn so very much on our YouTube channel, and they're very well done. So YouTube channel is Military Women's Memorial, all social media platforms, and likewise on our website. Okay. Well, I want to thank Phyllis Wilson, President, and Marilla Cushman, the Senior Advisor to the President with the Military Women's Memorial, for joining me today. Thanks to both of you for an excellent presentation. This was really great. Thanks, Cheryl. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And of course, when you tune into this site, you can access all of the Aging Matters radio programs that we've done, as well as the TV show episodes. And you can also log on to the podcasts, which are now on Apple and Spotify and Mixcloud. So be sure and check out that website to find whatever Aging Matters has been doing over the last almost seven years. I want to thank Ink Mouth Media for helping to produce Aging Matters today. Very appreciative of that company for helping to make this show happen. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. <music>